Nyata. Hello, it's Alison here, and I'm from a little church in southwest Victoria called Sanctuary. And today I'm reflecting on the stories at the beginning of Exodus, where a bunch of feisty women protected life and ultimately led to the Exodus itself. You'll find it in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Have you heard of the singing revolution? Day after day, Estonians gathered to raise their outlawed flag and to sing patriotic songs and to peacefully protest Russia's violent occupation. After five years, a million people were regularly gathering and singing. Such a vast, joy-filled experience, I can barely imagine it. And the Russians finally left. The political scientist Erika Chenoweth has found that just 3.5% of a population needs to be passionately engaged for a movement to achieve a groundswell and be successful. Not only that, but non-violent campaigns are twice as likely to achieve their goal. Other research shows that for systems change, just 10% of people in the system need to adopt a change for it to be rapidly accepted. But if you don't have that, they find, just get a small, committed group into a room and then let the energy expand outwards. Change will cascade through social connections and non-linear growth. The movement in Estonia started with a determined few, peacefully and powerfully singing. But as they gathered steam, the movement grew and grew. Here and now, I worry about voice and I worry about climate. And I know that I'm not alone. But I learned that if just 10% of those who plan to vote yes were to talk with two undecideds through their fears and anxieties and help them move to yes, then the voice would easily pass. And if just 3.5% of the population were passionate about climate action, the necessary changes would become not only possible, but inevitable. All it takes is committed people to show up and to share ideas and to let the energy flow. All of this is interesting to me. It's interesting because much of what we hear suggests that the people in charge make all the real decisions and hold all the real power. And I don't deny that our leaders often do make terrible decisions which have big consequences, and they often do wield power in terrible ways. You only have to look at the disastrous fossil fuel projects which are currently being greenlighted, or the racist fear-mongering regarding voice, to see the truth of this. And yet, this is not the whole story, and it's certainly not God's story. God's story goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a new story. It was a story in which people were oppressed. They were displaced from their homeland, and they worked in cruel conditions for no wages, and their children were being removed and even killed. A nameless pharaoh was making their lives harder and harder, but God heard their cries. And you need to understand this. Back then, Everyone thought power was a sign of divinity. Everyone believed that Pharaoh was God. Everyone knew the oppressed was scum. And yet in this story, God heard their cries. 
This is a radical newness at the heart of the story of Exodus, that great biblical epic in which God sets people free. And in this new story, God works through oppressed people. More precisely, in an intensely hierarchical, patriarchal and racist society, God works among people at the intersection of the lowliest of the low. God works among foreigners, women, children and slaves. This is where the real action takes place, among a small group of people at the bottom of the heap. So how does it go? A nameless despot wants to consolidate his power. So he spins a tale that the foreigners are a threat and may turn against their hosts. And then he enslaves them and sets them to hard labour on his building projects. And when that doesn't ease his fear, because nothing ever will, he brings in the foreign midwives, Shifra and Pua, and tells them to kill every boy as he's being born. And right away, we should hear echoes of the slave trade and of border walls and of forced sterilizations. Right away, we should think of child removal and forced assimilation. We know this story. But the midwives know their story too, and they know their culture. They know that God is more important than Pharaoh. They know that life is a gift from God. It's sacred. So they band together and they engage in a spot of civil disobedience. That is, they quietly let the babies live, and perhaps they encourage other midwives to do likewise. And they explain the presence of the living babies to Pharaoh by quoting his racism right back at him. Those Hebrew women, they give birth like animals. They just pop the babies out before we can get there. Well, plan A being unsuccessful, Pharaoh moves to plan B. He orders all the baby boys to be thrown into the river. And while many people comply because fear makes people do terrible things, others engage in furthered civil disobedience. One woman, whose name is Jochebed, makes a little ark. Then she gently places her baby in it, and she throws him into the river, in the ark, among the reeds. And so in one way she's following Pharaoh's order, and in another way she's completely disrupting it. And then, in an outrageous plot twist, Pharaoh's own daughter sees the baby and fishes him out. She negotiates with his sister Miriam for his care, and the baby's own mother becomes his wet nurse. And I imagine this came about because Jochebed, Miriam, and their newfound ally, Pharaoh's daughter, sat round a table plotting how to protect this little scrap of life. And as we all know, after many years, this little scrap grows up into a complex, stuttering man who continues the project which saved his own life. With God's help, and then his brothers, and then an invisible, growing groundswell behind him, he publicly and peacefully protests the slavery of his people, and he leads them into freedom. We all know the big men whether pharaohs, prime ministers, presidents or premiers. We are constantly bombarded by their names, images and propaganda. We are conditioned to believe that they set the agenda, that they shape culture, 
and that what they say is the way things are and will always be. Climate change doesn't exist and it's inevitable anyway. Sustainably logging native forests, it's a thing and jobs depend on it. Fracking, necessary. Sweatshops, unavoidable. Birthing trees, unimportant. Destruction of culture, regrettable. Institutional abuse, impossible. And the list goes on. And these lies are told to shape our reality, to teach us not to hope or dream and to keep the powerless in their place. But we are part of a different story, a story which stretches back to Exodus. And our story says Pharaoh is not God, nor is any president, prime minister or premier. Our story says power is no evidence of God's favour or God's gift. Our story says God hears the cries of the oppressed and God cares. And when God cares, then all is not hopeless and we are not helpless, as long as ordinary people remember their story and dare to live it out. In the short term, I don't know whether fight for the bite will be successful. Maybe seismic testing will continue, but I know it is less likely if the people against it keep showing up. Similarly, I don't know whether school strike for climate or love makes a way or black lives matter or even voice will fully achieve their goals in our lifetimes. But they're taking the conversation forward in important ways. And if people keep showing up, then climate health and justice for people seeking asylum and non-violent policing and a real voice to parliament will one day be inevitable. And I also know this, God hears the cries of the oppressed and God cares. And if we are faithful to our story, then like Shifra and Pua and Jochebed and Miriam and even Pharaoh's own daughter, then in the face of great evil, we must act. We must trust the spirit more than social norms. We must follow the way more closely than the law. And we must choose life and love over our personal comfort and even safety. Like the Estonians, we must sing in the face of violence and disrupt the forces of death. Like the women at the river, we must protect little scraps of life. And like the midwives, we must talk back to power in wise and foolish ways, if ever we are called to account. For we too are invited to be actors in God's great story of salvation, which stretches across time and space. And when we are on the side of life and love and truth and justice and spirit and the communion of all things, people, land, culture, Kuntapul and Managam, then we can be confident that we are on the side that is already victorious, even when the victory cannot yet be seen. The struggle goes on, but through Christ life and love have already won, and the forces of apathy, death and destruction shall not control us, nor cause us to back down or fear. 
So let us keep participating in God's own story, whether that's a Warnable for Yes project, the Love Makes a Way project, the Fight for the Bite project, or anything else. And let us be in on the victory as we gather with others to protect people, land, culture, and trees, wherever and however we are called. In the name of the great Reconciler, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. There's always more to read on our website at sanctuarybaptist.org and this week you'll find a reflection on Jesus' instruction to be perfect and how it might better be understood. This reflection was prepared on the lands of the Pequoring people of the Eastern Ma Nation. It's a land which was taken by force and has never been ceded. All around us, wattle trees are blooming and life has become a great firework of yellow. The peace of the land, waterways and skyways, be with us all. Amen.